Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. Have you ever been subjected to dodgy theology? It's the kind of Bible teaching that superficially sounds credible but cannot stand up under intelligent scrutiny. It's not new. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament dealt with it when he addressed the Church of the Colossians. If you'd like to be alert to what dodgy theology looks like, stay tuned as tonight Dr. Corbett explores the errant teachings that had crept into the Colossian church. I pray that you would speak to us. But more importantly, Father, for those that have come here today and their minds are racing, their minds are cluttered, their minds are full of distractions about pressing needs, about things that are going on in their world, on in their lives right now, I pray, Father, that over these next few moments together that you'll settle minds that Lord the the peace of your word would still the storms in people's minds that father as we look into your word you'll speak a calming word over the storms that are raging in some people's souls and father as some people have come with questions some have come with doubt some have come just barely clinging barely holding on i pray that today something will be imparted not only said but imparted that will bring faith and strength and conviction today oh god let your word grip us in jesus name amen amen please turn to the epistle to the colossians colossians chapter 1 and we're going to be continuing to look at this wonderful epistle of Paul to a church that he'd never been to. The church at Colossae was a church that was probably founded as we've seen by Epaphras. Epaphras was someone who probably was ministered to by Paul uh, during his time at Ephesus and would have been a part of the founding of the church at Colossae, which was um, uh, some distance to the east of Ephesus. And we know that, as we've seen, that um, the church at Colossae was now being bombarded, bombarded by false teachers bombarded with, the, with, with two types of false teachers. Those that said, to become a Christian, you must become a Jew first. So it's the law of Moses plus faith in Christ. That's called Judaism or Judaism. Judaizers. The other, the other false teaching was a teaching called Gnosticism. Silent G, Gnosticism. It's the idea that all matter, all physical realm is evil and corrupt and wrong and we must live a life where we distance ourselves from things and stuff and even punish our bodies. Gnosticism. So Paul's going to deal with those two things, but it's interesting as we've seen the way he deals with those two things is by not addressing them immediately and head on. He says... You know, if we listen in on the conversation he's having with Epaphras, who's gone to um, Caesarea to the prison where Paul was, and he's voluntarily made himself a fellow prisoner with Paul as he's sitting in that jail cell with Paul. We hear Paul 
coaching his young apprentice and telling him their problem is not their problem. Their problem is they don't know Jesus. That's the problem. They don't know Jesus. When I hear today, when I hear people like Oprah talk about Jesus being one of the many options that God has given people for salvation, I hear Paul the Apostle in this jail cell saying, she doesn't know Jesus. When I hear New Age gurus get up and say, Jesus was just a man who got the Christ anointing. He got the Christ spirit. He had Christ enlightenment. And they make it sound all religious. And then they say this, that every one of us should also get the Christ enlightenment. I hear Paul talking to Epaphras about the Gnostics. And I hear Paul saying, they don't know Jesus. So here's the first question. Do we know Jesus? And as we look at this passage, I want to be very reflective. And as, as I was going through these few verses from verses 15 to 23, which is what we're going to look at today, I had to stop. And it was, it was very slow for me to go through this because I'm, I'm asking in my own life, the questions that Paul seems to be asking. And I want you to hear what Paul is saying about who Jesus is. And I know I'm preaching a co-series at the moment on the book of Revelation. And one of the most outstanding verses to me in the book of Revelation is is a verse I've never heard any other preacher labour on. (laughs) I think it's Revelation 1 verse 11 where, where John... The closest disciple of Jesus, the one, the Bible says, who on that night he was betrayed was leaning across his chest as Jesus would have been laying down on his elbow. And there was John on his chest looking up at him and able to whisper things that no one else could have heard. And Jesus was able to whisper things back to John and John literally would have heard the the beating of Christ's heart. Here's this John who knew Jesus like no other person. And on that Isle of Patmos, he's confronted with a Jesus he'd never met. Because it wasn't Jesus, meek and mild, the carpenter, the one who only had one set of clothes, who was homeless, who wandered about and was eventually rejected by men and killed. This was the Jesus that John, it says this, I think it's Revelation 1.11 where it says this, Then I heard a voice like the sound of many crashing waters. And then it says this, So I turned to see, and I'm expecting the next word to be Christ. I'm expecting the next word to be Jesus. But it's really interesting. It says, Then I turned to see the voice. And I think I've mentioned to you before that the voice This expression, the voice, runs through the Old Testament. The voice. The voice. And when he turns to see the voice, he sees Jesus radiating such magnificence from his face. It looks like it's just hot white. 
It looks like his eyes are afire. It looks like there's something. Every time he speaks, it sounds like crashing waters, but it looks like a sword and a fire coming out of his mouth. There he is in radiant, priestly, kingly garments, and his feet are shining bright. And John, it says, falls down at his feet because he didn't recognize him. And Jesus speaks to him, John, it's okay, it's me, stand up. And when people talk flippantly about, well, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, I think, oh, man. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? I don't think Oprah does. I don't think some of these new age gurus do. And this is the point that Paul's going to make. And let's see if we can pick it up here. We're reading from verse 15. And as we look at this passage, I want you to see there is an overall theme in this passage, in these two paragraphs that Paul writes. And it's this. Here's the theme. See if you can pick this up. And it's really the theme of the book. Christ is head and in everything he is preeminent. And if you don't use that word preeminent in your vocabulary, you're going to hear it a lot in the next little while. Preeminent. What does it mean to be preeminent? Eminent. And here's a question I'm going to ask you in a moment. Is Christ preeminent in your life? Is he just a compartment? Is he just a piece of jewelry? Is he something that you reference occasionally? Or is he preeminent? Preeminent. This is the question we're going to explore. Here it is, verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God? The first thing anybody who really wants to know God should do is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what God the Father is like? Look at Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus said, John 14, when he said to the disciples, you want to see the Father? I've shown you the Father. You've seen me. Now, some people, they say that means Jesus is saying he is the Father. No, he's not saying that. The Father and Jesus are not the same person. They're in fellowship together. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the one that you look at and, he, and, and we can see who God is, what God is like. How do we do that? We have the privilege of having a Bible today that reveals who Jesus is. We have what's called sufficient knowledge. We don't have all the details of Jesus, but we have all we need of the details of Jesus. Scripture. It concerns me greatly that for a period of 500 years or so, Christians were killed by the church because they dared to make the Bible publicly accessible. John Wycliffe, the man who first translated the Bible into English, was executed by the church for doing it. William Tyndale... These men who took the Bible and made it accessible in English had contracts put out on their life. 
Today, I wonder what they would think. Seeing that the average Christian home probably has half a dozen Bibles in it. And the church doesn't have to put anyone to death to stop them from reading it. Church, if you want to know Jesus, the Word of God, we must open the Word of God. We must. Verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. <clears throat> what we see here that Christ, Paul is making the point, Christ is the object of our worship. He's, the, he's our total focus because he's the creator of everything. Now, I know that there are some people who look at this verse and go, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't like that verse. So they, they change the verse and they rather than have that verse, for by him all things were created, they insert a word. And if you ever meet a Jehovah's Witness knocking at your door, go to Colossians 1.16 and have a look at their own Bible. They put a word in square brackets there because that verse completely, completely and utterly wipes out everything the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. They teach that Jesus was created. They teach that he was a created small g God. But that verse says he is the eternal God who created everything. So of course they can't allow that verse in their Bible. So what do they do? They insert a word. Anyone know what that word is? Other. He is the creator of all other things. Thereby saying... That God the Father created Jesus first. And then they, they'll go on and they'll use this expression firstborn to say, see, we told you, but I want to show you that they are not handling the word of God accurately. Let's have a look here. He is called the firstborn of all creation. You notice that expression? Um, <clears throat> we, we read, uh, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him, verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, verse 18, he is the head of the body, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he must be, there's the word, preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Just want to come to this. He's the firstborn. Uh, the expression firstborn from the dead, the expression firstborn of all creation in verses 15 and verses uh, 18. I want, I want you to understand that these are saying exactly the same thing. The firstborn of creation does not mean he was the first thing to be created. The firstborn, firstborn is an expression that speaks of resurrection. How do we know that? Well, it goes on and Paul clarifies it. Firstborn from the dead. Now, when Jesus raised Lazarus, how is Lazarus's resurrection different to Christ's resurrection? Any ideas? Lazarus died again. Unless someone knows something I don't know, I'm pretty sure he died again. In fact, 
How many people did Jesus resurrect during his earthly ministry? Jairus' daughter, the funeral of the widow's son, and Lazarus. Three people. And you know what happened to all of them? They all died. When Christ was resurrected from the dead, do you know what happened to him? He lives. He lives. I mentioned I had a call from California yesterday and they were excited about the fact that we're going to India in a few weeks and they said you'll meet people there that just a few months ago were Hindus and they've now become Christians and when we asked them, nearly all of them, hundreds and hundreds of them, nearly all said the same thing and this is what they said and I absolutely guarantee you that you as a Bible-believing Christian just take it for granted and this is what they said. We turn from Hinduism to Jesus because he lives. He's the only living God. You're all going, that's not even worth writing down. And yet it's one of the central messages of Scripture. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and he what? Oh, that's not preaching. Try it again. And he what? That's better. He lives. He lives. Jesus is alive. And notice, for those that are into physics, it introduces the concept here of different dimensions. See this? Things visible and things invisible. Dominions. We, we would refer to that quite possibly as dimensions. Jesus is right now in a dimension that we often call heaven, eternity, the presence of God. He's alive. And these Hindu converts to Christianity all said this. We started praying to Jesus and for the first time in our lives, our prayers were being answered. Wow. We all just take that for granted, don't we? But man, these guys, it is precious to them. He's the firstborn of all creation. What does it mean? That he was the first thing to be created? No, he's the firstborn of the resurrection that creation is longing for. Romans chapter 8. You'll read it in there, Romans chapter 8, that all creation is longing, longing to put off this dimension, this dimension of death, and put on a dimension of life that will never end. And there are some of us here today that have been born twice, which means you'll only die once. And there are some listening to me right now that have only ever been born once, and it means you'll die twice. Because there is coming a judgment after this dimension, this life. And the Bible says that some people who have turned to Christ will either go to be with him for eternity and live forever, or... There are those that have only ever lived for themselves. They will die. They will stand before God on the day of judgment and they will die for eternity. And that word die does not mean cease to exist. That word die means to be separated. So when Adam sinned, he was separated from God. In other words, he died. When we die physically, what happens? Our spirit is separated from our body. Our spirit continues to exist. And if you think about it, our body continues to exist. It just changes chemical composition. It's not that it ceases to exist. 
And I know that there are some here, and Jehovah's Witnesses teach it, that a good, loving, kind God could never send people to hell for eternity. And quite frankly, they don't understand God. I'm hearing something in a prison cell said 2,000 years ago. They don't understand God. God is a loving, holy and just God who must punish sin. And how dare we think that sin is of light consequence to God. And I know this isn't the type of preaching that grows big churches because you've got to make sure you don't offend people. But the more I get to know Jesus, the more I'm offended. You understand what I'm saying? He puts, he puts fingers on my life and I go, hey, hey, leave that alone, that's mine. You invited me in. Yeah, but not that far. Back in the foyer. Got to let him in the lounge room of your heart. Let him be preeminent. What, what do we know about Christ? He's the creator of all things. That's what it says. He's the creator of all things. What does it say about creation? <laughs> I'm amazed that there are so many courses that people spend thousands of dollars on. Discover the meaning of life. I'll give you the meaning of life. Ready? And if you want to, if you feel compelled to give me thousands of dollars, I'm not going to stop you. But here it goes. The meaning of life is Jesus. How do we know that? This is what it says. How do we know? See, another, another course that you know, people pay thousands of dollars to go on and thousands of people turn up to these thousand dollar courses. It's how to be happy. You want to know how to be happy? You want to know what the meaning of life is? Give your life to Jesus and make him preeminent in your life. That's how you can be happy. It's counterintuitive because Jesus will get you doing things that look to you like sacrifice, look to you like laying down your life, look to you like putting your life second so that he can be first and others can come before you and you'll know a happiness you've never known before. That's good preaching, Andrew. That's good preaching. That was a lovely, warm response I got then. That was fantastic. Here we go. You notice this. It says at the end of verse 16, that all things were created through him. And what are those last three words? And for him. And for him. Everything's created for Jesus. Everything's created for Jesus. Even the mosquitoes. Someone said, <clears throat> I'm not sure who it was, they put it on my Facebook, about Noah when he took two of everything onto the ark. They said, mosquitoes. He missed the opportunity. <laughs> Leave my... <laughs> Was that you? <laughs> if only Noah had squashed those mosquitoes and not told anyone. We... <laughs> he had his chance. <laughs> but everything's created for God's purpose. Everything's created for God's glory. Do you know that? You're on your way to work in the morning. Someone cuts you off. Jesus was in that car that cut you off. Yes, he was. Something goes wrong in your life. How many times do you hear this story? I met with disaster in my life. I thought my world was coming to an end. Years have gone by and I've seen that that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. We hear that story, don't we? Because Christ is Lord and everything is for his glory. Everything is for his glory. 
He is the focus of creation. Notice this too in verse 18 that he's the head of the body, the church. And this is really the, the, the complementary epistle to Ephesians. Ephesians is about the body and Colossians is about the head of the body. Christ is the head of the body. Here's the deal, church. If we stop trying to please God, we have no right to exist as a church. No right. And I would dare say, if we became a, a personal development church, a church where we just made people feel better about themselves, you know our motto is not helping, helping your life to be better, it's helping make life better. We don't believe we make life better, but we help people to make life better because we want to introduce them to Jesus. But it's not a personal self-development thing that you can do, well, you know, I'll bring bits of Jesus into the equation. That's not Christianity. Christianity is surrendering everything because that's the way you were created. It's, uh, Ebony, Ebony was riding our ride on mower some time ago. No, let me start again. An unnamed daughter of mine was riding our ride on mower and it ran out of petrol. And Ebony has this little saying, whenever Dad comes over and wants to teach her, this is a teaching moment about you know, how to fill up a mole with petrol. We've never done it before. But I come over and say, now would you like me to show you how to fill up the mole with petrol? Ebony has this saying, no, I already know how to do it. And she, it was before she could say no from the age of two, she developed this little saying, no, I already know. Anyway, so I go over and I just thought, look, I better go and check what Ebony is actually doing to that mower because she's having a job of a time. And I discovered that she was pouring oil into the little, sorry, in, petrol into the little oil tube and was just so frustrated it was taking so long to fill up. Yeah. <laughs> now... Anyone have any idea what would have happened if she tried to start that mower with diluted oil? You've done it. I've done it three times <laughs> to cars. I could have used myself, but that would have been too humbling, so I've used ebony. Um, <laughs> I've blown up three engines in my driving career, and it's a shocking sound when the motor starts to get a little bit tinny. You hear this, and then all of a sudden you're driving down and you hear... Bang! Clank, 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 clank. Anyone ever? <laughs> what I've discovered is <laughs> if you put water in where the oil goes, <laughs> the oil goes this funny white milky colour and your engine blows up. You know, we're created by a creator to put certain things into our lives that will make us run the way we should run. And it's when people try and fill their fuel tank, not with Jesus, who we are designed for, but when they try and fill their fuel tank with water, sex, with work, money, relationships... that their life becomes out of whack and the engine starts to go clang, 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 and eventually it's going to go bang. 
And Paul is saying here that for a church to function properly, you know, I reckon we could be a slick, super big outfit if we just told people how to be happy, sang some nice, happy, clappy songs, never confronted sin, told people that if they just bring Jesus out of the bottle occasionally, rub it when they need him, they can have a fantastic life. Now, now make sure you all give lots of money to us. We could probably build a really big church like that because I'm sure that there are many who have done it. But if we are going to be serious about this, our focus is not to build a big church. Our focus is to do what? To please Jesus. To make him preeminent. To make him preeminent. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that all big churches don't also have that as the goal. I'm not saying that. So, he should be the head of every local church. He's also, as we've seen, the firstborn from the dead. That is the one who's been resurrected. But you notice this. It also says about Jesus. Do you know Jesus like this? It says in verse 19 that he is the fullness of God. What does that mean? I hope that means to you that you worship Jesus. That you, he, is the, he is our God and we worship him. I hope that's what it means to you. Now... <clears throat> We'll come back to that in a moment. I want you to see verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's a powerful word. I haven't got time to unpack it. I've preached on it before, but it's the word reconciled. If someone asks you why you're a Christian, you may want to think about using this word. Because... I realized that Jesus Christ was the only one who could reconcile me to God. Why is it a beautiful word? Why is it a rich word? That word reconcile means that you have two people that are fighting. They are enemies. And to reconcile means that peace has been made and they've been brought together. And not many of us understand that the enemies were actually us and God. Because we have this conceited attitude about ourselves that we're actually not that bad. And we meet people like this all the time. I don't need religion like you. I don't need a crutch. I'm actually not a bad person. I don't need to get religious. If I die and I stand before God, well, me and him have got this special deal going. I'll be okay. Thanks very much. And they don't get it. I hear Paul in the prison cell saying to Epaphras, they don't understand their true condition. The reformers, when they wanted to sum up all of Christian doctrine, they took a word, interesting Dutch reformers, they, they took this word, tulip. Tulip. You ever heard tulip, Tamara? You ever heard? T-U-L-I-P. Anyone heard it? Sums up all Christian doctrine, T. What does the T stand for, Nick? The top T. U-L-I-P, a total depravity of man. If you want to know what the U-L-I-P is, talk to Nick after the meeting. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. All right, so <clears throat> you notice that Christ wants to reconcile us, but we, we go on, verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile, where? Where were you hostile? Where does it say? Verse 21, hostile where? In mind. Hostile in mind, very important. We're going to see this in a moment. Doing evil deeds because what you put into your mind comes out in the way you live. And the Bible says you are hostile and you are alienated toward God. 
Before you became a Christian, whether you admit it or not, and hopefully if you're a Christian now, you do admit it, you hated God. You hated God. You were alienated from Him. You were hostile toward Him. So, I want you to see this. That describes our condition before we became a Christian. Verse 22, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is God's goal for your life. You want to know what to do with your life? Make that your goal. Just that verse. Live up to that verse. Have that as your prayer. I want to be like that God. I want to be holy, blameless and above reproach. Make that your prayer and see how God begins to work in your heart. Now that's what God wants to do to us. And I hope we want him to do it to us. And here's my concern as a pastor because the next verse starts with one of the scariest words in the Bible. Verse 23, what's the first word? If. If you haven't got if, you need to get the English Standard Version. If. If. Christ will do that in you. If. And that if should scare the living daylights out of us. Oh my goodness. I thought I could just say a sinner's prayer, call myself a Christian, and kind of everything would be right. But that's not what this text says. If, notice the if, if indeed, look what you have to do. You continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What is, what is the if? He talks about continuing in the faith. The, body, the faith is an expression, the body of belief, the body of doctrine, the body of things that are essential to be a Christian and to know God and to trust his word. In the hope of the gospel, that's, that's the entire scripture, sums up the message of God. Steadfast, immovable, sure. You know what I get the picture of when I read that and as I was pondering that? I get the picture of somebody who doesn't live a life where well, there's no doubts, there's no struggles. Job said this, Job 5, A man is born for troubles as surely as sparks fly upward. You will have troubles. You will create a few for yourself. You will have problems. You will have pressures. You will have distress. That will happen. And some of us want to have the kind of life where none of those things happen so that we can be steadfast, so that we can be steady, so that we can be consistent. But that's not the picture I'm getting here. This is a man writing from a prison cell who put his life on the line to share the love of God through the gospel. Is he steady? Is he steadfast? Is he faithful? You bet. So what does that tell us about what Paul is saying? It tells us that sometimes life will get phenomenally tough. I've seen tough times, experienced tough times. And during those tough times, the hardest thing to do is just to keep going. Keep going. 
I have the absolute highest respect and regard for people who go through tough times. And the tough times is tough for them. It may not look tough to us. We look at the mum struggling with her kids and we go, get your act together. Thousands of mothers do this all the time. And on the inside, she's crumbling and she's caving in. It's a tough time for her. And you know what she does? She bundles them up on a Sunday. She gets in the car. She comes to church. She's exhausted. It's hard. It's hard to be in church with young kids. Sometimes it's, it's easy to just think, I'll just leave them at home and I'll come and I'll just rest. It's hard. Yes, steady, steadfast, immovable, faithful. That's the time you need to be all those things. When it's hard. Too many Christians are cowards. And they run from pressure. Someone gives them a hard time at work and they feel the Lord telling them to quit. Someone in church challenges them about something they're doing in their lifestyle. Maybe they challenge them about picking their game up in their devotion to Christ. And all of a sudden, the Lord is telling them to leave that church. Pathetic, snotty-nosed wimps, cowards. Steady, steadfast, immovable, faithful Christians. That comes after the if. It's good preaching, Andrew. It's really good. I'm even going to take notes on myself. This is really, really good. Now, here's some questions. Is Christ preeminent in your life? This is the theme of the passage. Do you start your day dedicating it to Christ? Do you, do you give your life to Christ? Do you commit the end of your day to Christ? Husbands, wives, do you pray together? Do you invite Christ into your life? Are you prepared to make decisions based on seeking Christ for wisdom, not just the decision itself? Is Christ preeminent in your life? Is he a part of your life or is he the centre of your life? Is he in your life or are you in his? Is Christ preeminent in your life? That word if means that he must be if you want to be saved and go to heaven and spend eternity with God. If. Second question. Here's a question for the dads. Head. As we're looking at Christ, the head of the body, we're going to read on in Colossians that Paul says, now this theological concept has a practical implication in the family home. And he talks to dads, fathers, husbands as the head of the house. So let's jump ahead a little bit and ask this question of dads. Dads, is Christ preeminent in your family? Do you pray together as a family? Dads, do you lead that prayer time? Dads, do you open the Bible over the meal table? Dads, do you insist on having a meal time together? Good grief. Sony Playstations, Wii's, internet, broadband, digital television, DVDs, goodness knows. All the, all the things that can keep people from sitting together at a meal table. <laughs> Here's a question for all of us. Do you adore Christ passionately in your worship? When we worship... Do you ignore your week, the distractions, the things cluttering your mind and go, that's it. I'm going to move into a rest right now and I'm going to worship God. Do you do that? Do you worship him passionately? I love what Jeff had to share this morning over communion, that we should be free and exuberant in our worship. Are you filling your mind 
Paul says, before you came to Christ, you had minds that were alienated, hostile. Are you filling your mind with Christ-glorifying input? Where are you getting that input from? And finally, are you striving to live your life above reproach? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to make Christ preeminent, to make Christ the focus of our lives, the focus of our church, the focus of our families. Lord, when we go to work, we're working for Christ. When we drive to work, we're driving with Christ. When we're meeting people, we're meeting Christ. Help us, Lord Jesus, to make you preeminent in our lives. Oh God, I pray that we would live lives that are above reproach. Lord, none of us are there yet, but we want to be. So Father, it's my pastoral prayer for us as a church that you'll help us to live lives for you. Now, Father, if there are those who are listening to me right now and they've never given their life to Christ, I pray for them right now that they will surrender to Jesus. If you've never given your life to Christ, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you've never said, I can't do this on my own. I need God. I need the help of God. I need God to save me, deliver me, rescue me. If that's kind of the prayer of your heart right now, you can speak that out in something that sounds like this. Oh God, please forgive me. Please come into my life and help me to come into yours. Help me to live for you all the days of my life, I pray. Amen. Dodgy theology distorted the thinking of the Colossian church and distracted them from the truth of who Jesus was. A valuable insight and timely warning for Christians in the church today. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Colossians Part 3, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277, or via the website, findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.